0: Institute of Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington, a leading forecasting group for the pandemic, revised its estimates stating we should expect 410,000 deaths by New Year's Day. That's more than double as many lives currently lost. It's becoming clear that reopening colleges and universities for in-class learning is a bad idea. Outbreaks are popping up on campuses nationwide. And Donald Trump keeps politicizing the vaccine, threatening to turn it into a late October surprise. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. If you've been listening to this podcast, you know I'm not afraid to call out political bullshit when I see it. And I see a lot of it. Science is a process. You ask a question, you pose a hypothetical answer to that question, and then you do everything you can to disprove it. The whole process is built around removing our biases from our original questions. Politics is simply the way we allocate scarce resources, and since, by definition, all resources are finite, politics is everywhere, and so politics and science have to interact. People who think they can ignore politics don't appreciate that ignoring something so ubiquitous often lets it creep in in ways you don't see, because you aren't looking for it. Instead, I think that we have to be aware of the way politics interacts with science, and that's why I'm so worried right now. In a society that respects science and scientists, politicians would recognize science as an objective arbiter of truth. They would steer clear of influencing the scientific process and then respect the outcomes it produces and invest in the resources to pursue the solutions it offers. But the Trump administration is doing the exact opposite. They're actively interfering with the scientific process and then ignoring the outcomes that don't comport with their political aims. Here's a few examples. The president appointed Dr. Scott Atlas as a COVID-19 advisor. So what are his qualifications for the job? The prolonged lockdown is severely harmful to our country. In fact, it's killing people. This has really got to end. And we know the president here has a strategic and appropriate policy. Atlas is a neuroradiologist. For those who don't speak doctor, that means he's a doctor who specializes in taking scans of the brain. That'd be like hiring a plumber to do your roof because they, well, both work on houses. This week, Atlas pushed the bunk argument that we should rely on quote-unquote herd immunity, basically letting the virus spread so that people become immune. The problem with that? When you let people get a deadly virus, they die. They tried a similar approach in Sweden, and Sweden has the highest per capita death rate in the world. Atlas has also argued that masks aren't necessary, and that kids can't spread the disease. None of this is supported by science. But it's all supported by Trump. Atlas is just one of a few doctors willing to sell out his MD for points with the president. And last weekend... FDA Commissioner Stephen Hahn said he'd be willing to review an application for an emergency use authorization for a vaccine before phase three trials were complete. That's like authorizing a newly designed airplane to take passengers in the air before it's ever landed its first maiden flight. Meanwhile, Trump's been saying this. And we'll produce a vaccine before the end of the year, or maybe even sooner. Remember what I said about letting the process take its course? That ain't it. Here's the problem. Vaccine hesitancy, as we've discussed, is high in this country already, and Americans worry about the administration forcing scientists to cut corners to produce an October surprise for Trump. A Staten-Harris poll showed that 82% of Democrats, and even 72% of Republicans, think that the vaccine approval process is being driven more by politics than by science. And if people don't trust the vaccine that comes out of a politically tainted process, they won't take it. And what good is a vaccine outside of someone's arm? but this isn't how it's supposed to be. Next, we'll talk to someone who would have been leading the response from inside the administration had it happened under President Obama. Dr. Howard Koh served as the Assistant Secretary for Health in the Department of Health and Human Services in the Obama administration. We'll get his perspective on what should have been happening and what will need to happen under a new administration to get this right. After the break. Our guest today is Dr. Howard Koh. He's got a a storied career in public health. He's currently professor of public health at Harvard's Chan School of Public Health. But before that, he was the assistant secretary for health under President Obama. Uh, Dr. Koh, thank you so much for uh, joining us today.
1: Abdul, thanks so much for having me.
0: You know, the thing about public health is that (laughs) most of the time we operate in the background. And people don't really know what we do. Everybody kind of gets that we need it, but they don't really know what we do. And then all of a sudden, uh, we get thrust down a center stage. And that's precisely what's happened now. As someone who's operated uh, very high up in the national public health apparatus, how do you think about what public health is, of course, when it's functioning? And how should people be thinking about what the roles and responsibilities of public health would be if we had, of course, a functioning administration?
1: Well, Abdul, what a, what a great question. And let me start uh, very personally on that. And uh, I'm a physician like you, and I started off my career as a young doctor thinking that the key to making society healthier was to have better doctors offer better treatments. If you had talked to me when I was starting my clinical career, uh, I was just so eager to cure every patient. But put before me, Uh, it was uh, something that I was passionate about and honored to do, but very early on, I saw so many people suffering and dying when they didn't have to, Uh, so much suffering that could have been prevented and should have been prevented, and as I got more involved in this as a young clinician, it was a source of great anguish for me, quite honestly, and I I didn't quite know what to do with it. It started with tobacco, tobacco dependence, which we could talk about for a long time. That's That's been an overriding public health passion for me. But I quickly saw that theme throughout the whole health and public health landscape. And so over my career, I felt more and more called to get into prevention and policy and public health because that's where the answer lies. And Abdul, the simple answer to your key question is our good health is a gift And it's precious and it's fragile. Uh, Physicians like us have seen when that gift is forfeited, uh, people can't take that gift for granted. So if we build the strongest public health system possible, uh, we can protect that gift for people day in and day out. And when it works, I often like to point out that absolutely nothing happens And all you have is the miracle of a perfectly healthy, normal day. And right now, everybody would love to get that back.
0: Isn't that right? You know, one of the points that you, I think, so tactfully brought out is the notion that when it works, nothing happens. And maybe that's the hard part because in medicine, it's easy to sell somebody something when they're in pain and you're selling them the solution to the pain. But in public health, we're constantly trying to market a non-entity. That's right. Nothing bad happens when public health is funded fully. Mm-hmm. And in, in some ways, that's the hardest part because when you have people who are ideologically opposed to government entities as they stand, public health is one of those places that it looks like you can cut. And that is precisely what's happened over the past several decades. Um, and here we are with a uh, watered down uh, public health apparatus. Can you share with us, you know how is the federal government's public health apparatus organized? And where is it now relative to where it ought to be? And 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 then if you were in office today, um, how would you be thinking about leading the response to COVID-19?
1: Wow, what wonderful questions. <laughs> okay, so I've had the privilege of now serving at the state and federal level in public health positions. Uh, first, as the State Health Commissioner of Massachusetts uh, through 9-11 and Anthrax, by the mm-hmm. way, which is where I got my initial training to uh, emergency preparedness, uh, and then later at uh, HHS, as you've already mentioned. A- HHS is a critically important, broad, fascinating, complex organization. It's uh, nine major agencies, including Ones like FDA and CDC and NIH and CMS. Uh, it's got some 80,000 employees. It's got uh, a budget of uh, well over a trillion dollars. And so this is the leading health agency for the country. But even that, in that agency, Abdul, the, the public health dimensions are relatively small. Um, one obvious reason is the agency CMS is the 800-pound gorilla of the uh, of, of that institution as you know, that's where all the funding is directed uh, They have s- tremendous power about reimbursement uh, for hospitals and doctors and healthcare professionals
0: and CMS being uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid who operate Medicare and Medicaid the Largest government uh, health insurers that serve elderly folks and, and low-income people
1: R- Absolutely, right. Yeah, so that is critically important. Uh, we need outstanding leaders at CMS uh, and try to make our healthcare system more effective and efficient. Uh, we, we have the most expensive uh, health system in the world uh, without the outcomes to match, and that's what's frustrating everybody on both sides of the aisle for a long, long time. But in my view, and I'm sure your view, Abdul, the, the answer to this is to start earlier on and to instill prevention in public health from the beginning of life, uh, from the time somebody is born, even before they're born, to have healthy, healthy moms and make sure that they are uh, as healthy as possible to give birth to healthy, healthy children, and then also to build healthy communities by working not just with health professionals but with other sectors of society. That's where all the social determinants of health themes come up that we can talk more about. So that's the theory, and then if we have strong public health departments, not just ones like uh, CDC that's part of HHS, but also the state and local level, and they're all working together against threats to our health, we, we can maximize prevention and then protect that gift of health for millions. But but sadly, yeah. Abdul, that is not happening. Uh, and for far too long, prevention has been overlooked and underfunded because people don't see the results day in and day out. In a time of budget crisis, that's the first thing cut and last thing restored with respect to resources, uh, when threats come, ranging from tobacco or opioids or other infectious diseases, or in this case, COVID, uh, people expect and demand immediate attention, but our society just has not invested in it as a pr- priority for far too long. So right now, as we are deep in this crisis, and by the way, we can also point to the fact that we, we do not have a one government response to this crisis uh, So far, and we should have federal, state, and local health leaders working together in tandem behind a national plan. We we don't have that, so we have a fifty-state strategy that has led to a lot of confusion across the country. But as we try to get out of this, especially as we face a fall with seasonal flu coming up and perhaps a second wave of COVID, uh, we got to rebuild the public health infrastructure and make that really come alive so that everybody sees how critically important it is to protect the health of people and the nation and the world going forward. Mm.
0: And, you know, w- when I've talked about um, the response that we'd want to see to COVID in the past, I, I often sort of thought of, of it as a uh, an orchestra, Absolutely. right? And you have... Um, you know the state and the local health departments that pay, play particular instruments, but you need a conductor at the front. And the conductors tended in the past to be the federal government. And under this administration, for clear political purposes, um, they have in all but vacated that role. And so now you've got everyone trying to play, uh, but but they're reading from different sheet music, and uh, it's unclear what what song they're playing. Um, you know. You would have been in the role had this happened under the Obama administration to really be leading the public health response to this. What would be the hallmarks of that leadership uh, under a functional administration?
1: Uh, All these great questions, Abdul. So many ways to answer that good question. Uh, First and foremost, we need daily communication with the American public about the status of the pandemic, the trends, where it's going, and updated public health guidance that communicated to the American people uh, on a regular basis. Hmm. Uh, Earlier on in the pandemic, we had the Coronavirus Task Force doing that. And then we went dark in terms of communication for a couple months. Uh, The president restarted these uh, about six weeks ago. Uh, But the information needs to be communicated by top health officials. The White House has a role to convene people and galvanize attention, but then their role should be to step out of the way and have the most trusted health leaders, like Dr. Fauci, who I've had the great honor of knowing and working closely with, step up and do the communication. So people hear it from the most credible, trusted sources and and hopefully uh, follow uh, the lead. Mm-hmm. So that has not happened. And so when we don't hear about it from uh, the top health officials on a daily basis, there's a lot of confusion at the community level about what uh, what is the guidance and and is it scientifically based so that that's that's one major theme, another major thing theme abdul is making sure that all of government is is working together when I was at h h s through h one n one we had all of government working together, not just h h s but all all the agencies within the federal government working together, and that was the rallying cry for for the opening nine months of my tenure until uh, the Affordable Care Act actually was passed, and then we moved on to that. Uh, And then making sure that we have the top scientists in the country, uh, both outside of government and within government, communicating with one another and sharing the best information so that uh, it's being supported and understood and then communicated to the right audiences is critically important. Uh, Making sure that state and local leaders are empowered uh, and having all those themes put forward day in and day out, starting with data and trends, by the way. Um, I noticed, for example, the great leadership of governors like Governor Cuomo in New York. Because at the beginning, when he was starting his daily briefings, uh, the trends there were very hard, I'm sure, for him to accept. Mm. But he didn't shy away. He started with the data and science Ah, uh, to my recollection, he had daily briefings for one hundred eleven days in a row until all the trends have, have gone down. And now New York is viewed as a leader for the country. so that that's those are the types of themes that I think we need to follow right now
0: mm. So there's two things in particular that strike me about what you shared. Number one, um regular communication. Mm-hmm. And then number two, being led by science exactly. So you're letting the science lead forward and then communicating to the public about what that science means we need to do, um, and then doing that thing. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's sad, but we haven't had scientific leadership in large part because, uh, we've had politics, uh, get in the way and, you know, uh, very direct and, uh, purposeful politicization of the pandemic. And then the communication has been very haphazard and has been led by, uh, or led with the politics first. Um, You know, as we think about the next phase, you know, we've got an important election in November and uh, God willing, we get new leadership. Um, What will it take to reverse course? Because of course, it would be easy to establish that norm and leadership from the very beginning. But now we've got a population that's been politicized and and split apart around this issue. Uh, Many people falling prey to the misinformation that has been pushed oftentimes from the very top of our political apparatus. Um, what will it take to reverse course and to build and uh, re-engage the trust of uh, the American public in both the political leadership and then public health as, uh, as an entity?
1: Okay, all these easy questions you got for me. <laughs> so several ways to answer that one too. Uh, first and foremost, we continue to need a, a national strategy, not a 50-state strategy. Uh, are we, are we going to get that? At the rate we're going, I'm not sure. Uh, we do have many governors trying to bring collaborations among themselves. So we need to encourage that. So that, that's one key step. Uh, Abdul, we have all sadly seen just in recent weeks, the erosion of confidence in storied and otherwise respected agencies like FDA and CDC. And we have all seen how the administration has bypassed or even tried to undermine some of those decisions, that is very difficult Mm -hmm. to watch. Now, why that is of great concern right now is we need a COVID vaccine that's fully vetted, researched, analyzed, viewed by outside experts uh, that weighs in on the process by which the FDA finally approves one or more of those vaccines going forward. And when it comes out, it is absolutely critical for the nation and the world to have the highest level of confidence and trust in that vaccine if we expect people to accept it and embrace it. What I'm concerned right now is that with some of the latest developments, uh, the trust and confidence in government agencies, particularly HHS, and even and especially FDA and CDC is starting to get eroded, and we just cannot let that happen. So I'm hoping that uh, those leaders can uh, step up in this very difficult time. Uh, One way to begin to restore trust is to make this seasonal flu vaccination campaign that's starting right now, make that a roaring success and show that vaccination can be done in in a seamless fashion and uh, be accepted by tens of millions of Americans. I, you know that the flu vaccination rates are generally you know, 45% or so, which is just not acceptable in a time like this. So we need flu vaccination rates to rise up dramatically. We need to show that vaccination uh, can be well accepted and can be administered in a efficient and effective fashion and make that all the foundation for a future COVID vaccination effort. And all those efforts have got to be coordinated and communicated starting right now.
0: Mm. there's a there's a lot that needs to (laughs) that we need to get right um there's also a bigger picture question here and that's the 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 fact that public health um you know the central word in 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 public health is public and there is a requirement for real collective action for the public Mm -hmm. good and it becomes extremely hard um, for a community to act collectively when we are so divided about the very thing that we are supposed to be acting upon. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how we start to think about the direction that we need to go in terms of even having a conversation with the American public that seeks to bring people together even when we have the right leadership in place. I worry that, you know, following this four years of Trump and the damage that's been done uh, already about COVID-19 and the misinformation that's been spread, that even under the correct leadership, it's going to be hard to bring people together to buy in. Because, of course, something as simple as wearing masks, you know, all of us have to do it. Um, and if any of us deviate, all of us are affected by that. Um, what kind of public communication from people like you, from people like me, uh, needs needs to happen? Um to be able to bring people back in the fold. Because it, it strikes me that this sort of shaming and blaming is probably not helpful in that respect. And, uh, and, and I think actually drives more of a wedge. How do you feel like we need to be talking to people uh, who may have fallen prey to the the misinformation that, mm-hmm. that's come out of this administration uh, and you know its acolytes um, to be able to bring people back in the fold and do the things that need to get done?
1: So whenever we feel that we are on the other side of this pandemic, which I hope is sooner rather than later, although there's so many questions on the timing of all that. I hope that we as a society can look back and say, we need to vow that this can never happen again to us. And how do we prevent such a crisis from ever happening uh, in the future? How can we be more prepared? What are the values we all have to adopt together as a society? And what do we need to prioritize with respect to people and resources and programs going forward. Public health and prevention has got to be the answer there. And what does encourage me, uh, Abdul, as as a professor now at Harvard, is I see the passion and interest of young people, uh, and they are so committed to doing more for their community and their nation and the world. Uh, I have the privilege of teaching at at Harvard, where we have students from around the world. They bring astonishing insights and passions and commitment. And uh, this is an ever-changing, fascinating interdisciplinary field. Uh, I think we also need to train and educate the best leaders in public health because they all are uh, conducting an orchestra, as you beautifully said. I I love that analogy. In fact, I, I use it a lot. When you're leading and conducting a public health orchestra, uh, you are making all the parts play together and in harmony. Uh, You are encouraging certain parts of the orchestra at certain parts of the performance and then other parts and other parts of the performance. You are asking some instruments to play a little louder. You're asking the drums to play a little bit softer. Uh, You do a lot of work behind the scenes. And then when the When the curtain goes up, the audience expects a perfect product. Uh, When you deliver, uh, sometimes the conductor gets tremendous praise, but oftentimes the conductor uh, is not even seen at all. The person fades into the background. Mm -hmm. And quite honestly, Abdul, I think the best public health leaders are the ones who don't attract the attention. They put in the work in the background. They help people work together in a collaborative way. And, and they help make that magical product, which is what we value as public health. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm hoping we can see more of going forward. Uh, back to some of the themes on financing and resources, we, we also need um, much more attention about how we're spending the public health dollar, uh, the healthcare dollar rather, and how much of it's going to prevention and public health, because that ratio has been far too low for public health for far too long. And, and it, that's got to change.
0: Yeah. And you know, we've we've talked a bit about um, about the challenges, right? The idea of what you're offering and what the payout looks like. And in, in some respects, you know, you look at our healthcare system and we have hook, line, and sinker given it up to a a number of very powerful corporate interests who have a lot of money to be made healing people after they get sick. And so it provides a system-wide disincentive um, almost to prevention because it's hard to make money off of a Mm -hmm. non-thing. How do you feel like, as the conversation develops, hopefully when this is behind us, how do you feel like we need to be thinking about um, riding that ship, reinvesting in public health and prevention and wellness, uh, in, in investing less in the latest and greatest um, uh, when it comes to health care. Uh, you know, big, big, beautiful atria in the in the in the front of the hospital to attract patients and sometimes uh, less than high quality care in in the back of the hospital. Um, how do we write that ship and and communicate to the American public about why the investments we make on the front end are so much more important sometimes than the investments we do have to make in the back end?
1: Well, as difficult as these recent months have been, if you take the long view, people from both sides of the aisle all agree that we spend way too much money on healthcare and we don't have the outcomes to match. And from a global point of view, uh, we have the most expensive healthcare system in the world by far. Mm-hmm. So there's been some recent work starting uh, in the Obama administration through the Affordable Care Act and now th- through the current administration through the CMS Innovation Center about how we can pay for uh, health and population health in different and innovative ways. Value-based payments instead of fee-for-service, uh, and that transition has been going on slowly but surely. Uh, more attention to uh, healthcare institutions and hospitals, for example, interacting with their communities, and, uh, some community benefits standards put forward through the Affordable Care Act, for example. Uh, more attention to social determinants so that, Health leaders are not just talking to other health leaders, but they're getting out of their silos and working with leaders in education and transportation and housing and faith-based organization and even and especially business. Uh, That's an area actually that I've gotten involved in to my great surprise. And if we're going to make our country healthier and also help reach the sustainable development goals put forward by the WHO – uh, we need all those sectors working together. So I think that's what the future of public health is. Those are some areas that I'm focusing on, certainly from my viewpoint right now as a professor.
0: Well, we really appreciate you joining us. And we always uh, finish on one last question, which is how are you spending these um, very odd days?
1: <laughs> yeah, so I I feel pretty fortunate. For, uh, first, I stay in very close touch with a lot of colleagues of mine who are in the trenches right now at the local, state, and federal level. I I respect them all so much. I know how difficult it is to serve in these public roles in a time of crisis because I've done it myself. Um, But as a professor, I've been able to uh, work from home, uh, teach by Zoom, uh, do more and more interactions on COVID developments uh, through uh, consulting and advising and then uh, interacting with the media and the press, which uh, is a opportunity, I think, to tell people what public health is. This used to be an invisible field to the public, but it's not anymore. And so I feel it's a great honor to do those interviews and tell people how important the gift of health is, how precious it is, how fragile it is, and how we just cannot take it for granted. And we have opportunities to make sure that this COVID-19 pandemic is the last one we ever have.
0: Well, we appreciate your, uh, your leadership and your voice uh, and your service, and uh, really grateful to, uh, to have you today. Thank you so much.
1: Abdul, a pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. Outbreaks are popping up all over college campuses, prompting a series of questions about how best to handle them. On the one hand, shutting down in-classroom learning and quarantining those who are exposed is obvious. But once classes are shut down, should students go home? Here's Dr. Fauci's take. It's the worst thing you could do. Keep them at the university in a place that's sequestered enough from the other students, but don't have them go home because they could be spreading it in their home state. All of this points to the fact that sending students back this fall has been a bad idea. Colleges and universities are facing tough financial pressures to maintain steady enrollment, and students are electing not to enroll into online-only colleges. At the same time, congregating thousands of 18- to 22-year-olds onto a college campus in a pandemic, what did we think was going to happen? Meanwhile, as the fall barrels forward, leading infectious disease modeling groups are revising their estimates of COVID-19 deaths through January upward. One of the leading modeling groups, the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington, estimates that we're headed toward 410,000 deaths by January, but that could be as high as 620,000 deaths. Why? Colleges and universities are part of the problem, but so are school openings, the natural indoor migration of the fall and flu season. We need more social distancing, more masking, more testing, and more contact tracing, not less. And yet, as people get more and more accustomed to life under a pandemic, these protections are sometimes sliding. The president is actively making it worse, which is why we're all living in a public health dumpster fire. We need a new president. Help us get one by adopting a swing state today at VoteSaveAmerica. And you should adopt Michigan. Why? Because we lost Michigan by a mere 10,704 votes. We can't let it happen again. Adopt Michigan at VoteSaveAmerica.com/slash-Michigan. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Charlotte Landis mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra, Lyra Smith, and Alison Falzetta. The theme song is by Take Asuzawa and Alex Sugiera. Our executive producer is Sarah Geismer. And I'm your host, Dr. Abdul Al sayed Thanks for listening.